Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the prophets, and here we're going to be having a discussion on the first portion of Daniel chapter 6. We do invite you to take a look at those links in the show notes. Specifically, we'd love for you to subscribe and take a look at our YouTube channel, where we post weekly videos on Bible, liturgy, and culture. Right now, we have just begun a series on the Sermon on the Mount with Peter Lightheart. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation over this passage. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Daniel chapter 6. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing out everything and taking out everything that we don't want to be made public uh, from the uh, from the previous recording. We are in the middle of a series on prophetic literature in the Old Testament. Uh, we started out with a couple of opening introductory podcasts on prophecy. We went through the book of Jonah over the course of several weeks, and now we're in a, uh, a fairly lengthy series on the book of Daniel, and we've gotten to Daniel 6, which will be the topic of this episode and the next episode. Daniel 6 is a transitional chapter in some ways uh, because it's the beginning of Daniel's interactions with uh, Persian kings rather than Babylonian kings. The previous chapter saw the fall of Babylon on the night of Belshazzar's feast, and chapter 5 ends with Darius the Mede coming and receiving the kingdom at the age of 62, and then the Chapter 6 is about Daniel and Darius, or as some might want to say, Darius. So we're in a Persian period rather than the Babylonian period. But uh, this is also part of a, a larger structure that we've looked at throughout our series on Daniel. There's a chiastic structure for the Aramaic sections of the book of Daniel from chapters 2 to two to 7. Uh, and chapters 2 and 7 match because they're both dealing with a series of four kingdoms using different images, but they're still dealing with the same series of four ancient empires. Chapters three and six match. Chapter three is about the three men in the fiery furnace who are placed there because they violate a king's edict, because they are accused by certain Chaldeans, by enemies of the Jews within the administration of Babylon. They're rescued, of course, from that fiery furnace. There's a one like a son of, son of God in the fiery furnace with them, and there's no harm to them in the end. The same kinds of things happen to Daniel in chapter 6. There's a really close match between chapters 3 and 6. Again, there's an edict. In this case, it's an edict about uh, worship and prayer, petitions offered to the king rather than to any god or man. And Daniel violates it. He's accused because he violates it. He, like the three men of the fiery furnace, is put into a, a place of punishment. He's put into a lion's den. An angel comes and shuts the mouth mouths of the lions like the Son of Man in Daniel 3. Uh, you even have some similarity of uh, phrasing. The accusers in Daniel 3, those who accuse the three men, are said to eat the pieces of the three friends. And that same phrase is used here in Daniel 6 toward the end of the chapter in verse 24 when it talks about the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. They're thrown into the lion's den. But that's the same phrase which can be translated as something like eat the pieces or tear to shreds or something like that. It's a predatory image, and it's used in both of these chapters, in chapters 3 and 6. So there are all these parallels between these two chapters. Uh, they both involve acts of diso- civil disobedience on the part of Jews and re- uh, miraculous rescues from danger on the part on, on God's part. Uh, chapter 6 is uh, kind of set up in a, in a chiastic structure. It begins, if you, if you include the last verse of chapter 5 particularly, you can see an inclusio with a mention of, Darius the Mede in 531. At the end of chapter 6, there's a reference again to the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. We'll have to talk about the relationship between those two characters. I think we touched on that in the last episode, but we might want to uh, talk about that in more detail. But you have that that frame around the chapter that refers to the kingdom of Darius. Within that, you have the exaltation of Daniel at the beginning of the chapter that provokes his enemies. Daniel's uh, re-exalted at the end of the chapter. Those match up. There's a decree passed by the king early in the chapter, a decree not to have any 
No one can pray to any god or man except the king for 30 days. And then you have a, a subsequent decree at the end of the chapter where uh, Darius decrees that everyone should tremble before the living God of Daniel. Uh, there's an accusation against Daniel from the satraps who oppose him. And then the matching part in the latter part of the chapter is the accusers are destroyed. The men who had tried to eat the pieces of Daniel are cast into the lion's den. We have Daniel thrown into the lion's den and then Daniel brought out of the lion's den that uh, those are the near section that I think the center of the chapter seems to be this nighttime event uh, where the focus is not on Daniel. We don't know what's happening to Daniel while he's in the lion's den. We don't know if we imagine he's praying. We imagine he's praising God. We don't know exactly what he's doing. What we have instead is a focus on the king uh, at the center of the chapter and what the king is doing. He's fasting and praying and waiting for daybreak so he can go and check on Daniel and see if he's been able to survive and if the Lord has rescued him. So we have that kind of structure with uh, this inclusio referring to Darius's kingdom. And then at the center, we have the king as the, uh, as the central focus who goes through this period of fasting and uh, deprivation uh, over the night and then uh, comes to check on Daniel in the morning. I mentioned the question of the identity of Darius. I don't, I don't remember now how, how much detail we went into uh, last time about the the identity of that character. Uh, there are some that would identify him with Cyrus. Uh, at the end of chapter 6, instead of reading it as Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and also in the reign of Cyrus, you could read it as success in the reign of Darius, even in the reign of Cyrus the Persian, that Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian are the same character, and there are, there are ways of making that work. Uh, there's the other alternative, of course, is to see Darius as some kind of subordinate to Cyrus. Cyrus, of course, is the one who uh, conquered Babylon and ruled the Persian Empire. And Darius would be some kind of subordinate who's placed in charge of the city of Babylon and perhaps the province of Babylon. And that's the focus in chapter six, if we take that interpretation. Uh, I don't remember if we discussed that in detail in the last episode, but it's worth it's worth visiting again if we didn't in uh what what kind what thoughts do you have do y'all have on that? Uh, which which of those alternatives works better? I mean, personally, I, I go for a third option. I guess I, I think Darius is probably the last king of the Medes and um, was superior to Cyrus, and um, uh, yeah, and and so I, I don't I think that's a, a third option, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. So the uh, the Medes are the ones who take Babylon. And uh, and Darius is 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 the one who is the conqueror of the city and of the of the kingdom of Babylon, and then uh, Cyrus comes later as a Persian, taking over now the United Kingdom. Is that the is that the scenario you're suggesting? Yeah, it, it is. I, I think that Cyrus was subordinate to Darius at the time of the conquest, but Darius kind of died soon afterwards. Is, is my sort of best guess as to how things worked. There are a number of things to consider in whatever position we arrive at. Somehow or other, we have to understand the consistency between, if we are going to argue that it is Cyrus, the consistency between what we know of his character elsewhere and the way he's described in this chapter. So would we expect him, for instance, to have this decree? If he did, what would be the rationale for it? Um, Also, the question of age. Um, Cyrus would have been around 62 at the time of the um, capture of Babylon. Um, so that seems to be a, a mark in his favour um, as, a, as a possible um, figure for this. The other thing is the fact that he had married into um, Median royalty and also the emphasis upon the Medo-Persian kingdom earlier on as a united entity um being identified as the mede here would give weight to that and not just suggest it's a persian empire um one other detail that is interesting that golden gay john golden gay has mentioned is that the age 62 is connected with the number of shekels that's implied in um daniel's interpretation of the writing um so there are a number of factors there that maybe can shape or constrain our readings, but I'd not really explored the possibility that James put forward before. Yeah. Al- Alistair, do you, you raise the question about whether the decree 
described here in Daniel 6 is consistent with what we know about Cyrus. Did, do you have an answer to that? I think um, it tends to push against it, but I think there's an explanation. I like the way that um, James Jordan treats it in his commentary, the fact that there was a sort of religious vacuum for a period of time as idols were moved into Babylon. And this was a sort of attempt to shore up that religious vacuum. Um, so it wasn't just about a self-aggrandizing ruler. It was there was something of a religious crisis as all the idols that people would have worshipped are taken away. How do you retain the unity of the kingdom in this situation? Well, this decree might actually serve that purpose. And so it's a yeah, more practical that, yeah. reason rather than just um, driven by ego. Yeah, that's what I was thinking uh, too, the political reason of unifying uh, the nation, unifying everyone after this conquest. That seems to make sense here. Um of what's going on. Yeah. I, I want to get back to the decree because I think there's some interesting questions to probe there. But the, uh, just a, as a note on the identity of uh, Darius, Darius is a title or could be a throne name. Uh, so having having Cyrus and Darius name the same person is not, that's not a problem. Like Xerxes is also a throne name or a title. Artaxerxes, they're different uh, different uh, Persian kings that, that bear these these same names. Or some a single a single Persian king can have a variety of different titles. If somebody confirm or deny that. Is that the case? I mean, it's rare in my experience, but I think there are examples of it. Hmm. I mean, part of my own thinking in thinking that this is a Median-led empire at the outset, i.e., when Babylon is conquered, is just the more general testimony of Scripture. So in Isaiah thirteen and Jeremiah 51, it's pretty clear, you know, God stirs up the Medes against Babylon or the kings of, of the Medes. And you you have this media-led um, force which topples Babylon. And it seems that it then goes through a transition to Persian power over time. And so Daniel initially refers to it as Medo-Persia um, and the laws of the Medo-Persians. But then Towards the end of uh, Esther, you get it referred to as the, you get, for instance, the armies of the Persians and Medians referred to. And even towards the end of Daniel, um, Daniel starts talking about the kings of, of Persia. Um, but particularly important to my mind is chapter 8, where it seems that when Babylon is conquered, when you get this ram sort of charging into the picture, the Median horn at that time is the highest and then the persian horn becomes higher only later on you know only after the conquest of of babylon so i mean for me it, it makes more sense yeah. to say that darius the mede was the ruler at that time um which is actually if you look at historic commentaries kind of which has always been the mainstream position um but recently thinking has, has shifted a fair bit okay. so what kind of time period are we talking about what kind of time period are we talking about, James, between the conquest of Babylon and you, you suggested that Darius uh, didn't survive long after that conquest? Are you talking about a matter of uh, weeks, months, years? What kind of, how long a stretch do we have? I mean, th there is an account, I can't remember whose it is now. It's either Barossus or Xenophon who says that Darius dies um, two years, two years later, two years after conquering Babylon. So, yeah, very shortly. Yeah, okay. Sorry, Alistair, go ahead. One of the questions would be also the interpretation of verse 28 of this chapter. Do we understand it to be saying, um, so Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius, and which is the reign of Cyrus? Or speaking of them as two distinct reigns, the possibility that it's referring to the same person um, under two names um, is given some support by First Chronicles 5.26, where you have the king of Assyria referred to by two different names um, with the same sort of structure. The other mm. thing is there are so many figures within the book of Daniel already that have two names um, and referred to with interchanging names in particular contexts. So that is maybe a complicating factor if we're yeah. um, dismissing the idea of um, the possibility of having two names for this figure. 
Yeah, good point. Good point. I want to go back to your point about the 62, the age of 62, Alistair, not just as a historical issue, but you mentioned the uh, you mentioned the symbolic dimensions because it does tie in, as, as James pointed out last, last time when we talked about uh, Daniel 5, it ties into the number of shekels that are named in the inscription during Belshazzar's feast. I think it's also it's also interesting. You have this you have this new regime coming in. Uh, Belshazzar appears to be a, a younger man, a younger king. Uh, now the new regime is coming in, and it's a guy who's sixty two. You know, the middle aged guy is the new guy on the block, which I think is a, an interesting twist. Uh, and uh, several times we've we've had uh, we've had uh, mention of the connection between the number sixty two as it's used here at the end of chapter five, and the sixty two weeks that are part of the 70 weeks in Daniel 9. Uh, and uh, one of the things that that possibilities that raises is that that reference to 62 followed by this story in chapter 6 is actually some kind of narrative preview of the prophecy that is being given in Daniel 9 with the 62 weeks followed by a week where a bunch of stuff happens. Because you've got this, the 70 weeks are divided into a seven-week period then a 62-week period, and then the final week, the 70th week. And all the all the major stuff is happening in that final week. Uh, and uh, there, there does seem to be some, there do seem to be some parallels between what's happening in chapter 6 and uh, the, the more overtly messianic uh, prophecy of chapter 9. And the number 62 links the two. So a, a Daniel 6, in other words, would be kind of this uh, extended narrative type uh, type of uh, what's going to be coming with the coming of the Messiah. Hmm. We might have another 62 lurking around if we want it. We've got 120 <laughs> satraps and three um, guys on top of them, and then Darius at the top of the tree. So it's a sort of 124, a, a twice 62-fold um, kingdom, I guess. Interesting. <laughs> I've not noticed yeah. that. Yeah, that's good. So that's the first thing that we learn in chapter six is that Darius is setting up this new organization for his kingdom with the satraps, the commissioners over the satraps, and then uh, the king above all of them. And the the motivation for this uh, is somewhat disputed. It depends on how you how you take the final phrase of chapter of verse two after it describes this setup. It says uh, that the king does this so the king might not suffer loss. That's what my New American Standard Bible says. But there are some translators who suggest something more like um, this is this is a this is an extreme version of the translation but something like so the king wouldn't be bothered <laughs> uh, by all of the details of administering the kingdom so uh, uh, if you take it the way that uh, um, my Bible is translating it looks like it's a wise distribution of power decentralization of power to enable Darius to keep track of his kingdom by devolving power to these satraps and commissioners uh, but the other translation would suggest that he just doesn't he doesn't want to have to spend the time to oversee his own kingdom and so he delegates authority so any thoughts on the motivations for this and i mean it, he's a new king coming in so organize, reorganizing the kingdom makes sense but is this is this a uh, to his credit or to his uh, discredit that he's uh, organizing things in the way he does well whatever the motivation <clears throat> daniel distinguishes himself. And it, if uh, we're thinking about how this would function among the exiles and also among the dispersion, um, think about how the Jews are in these various provinces, um, of course, here with the Persians, but later on, of course, Greeks and Romans, and how they would all be organizing their state in various ways. Um, and Jews, like Daniel, becoming distinguished, becoming well-known, being faithful, being elevated. Um, it One of the things that occurs to me is that uh, the Jews reading this would be uh, on the lookout for uh, jealousy, rivalry, mimetic rivalry, from others, no matter what the bureaucratic structure of the empire, whatever empire they happen to be in, um, they are being alerted to the fact that um, the, all of these all of these organizations are going to have men, going to have people 
that are going to be jealous of them, going to be zealous to uh, see them uh, brought down, deconstructed so that they could take their place or all these power moves going on here Mm -hmm. in the chapter. Maybe one thing that would weigh against his wisdom is the fact that this particular decree is not something that he he doesn't recognize the motivation behind it. It's about petty court mm-hmm. politics rather than actual political prudence. Um, well, it might be sold to him that way, but he doesn't seem to recognize what's going on within his own administration. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that. Again, I, uh, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but I, I'm curious about what, is it possible that a 62-year-old Maybe he's a general who's never had authority in this kind of way before, and he doesn't know the kind of machinations of a of a of a, a court. Uh, but it seems oddly naive for him to not recognize some of the some of the effects of this decree. You know, how well does he know Daniel? Does he know Daniel is going to be affected by it, or not? Leave Daniel specifically to the side. Does he not know that the Jews, who are fairly populous in his empire, are going to be adversely affected by this. I think too of, you know, he's just taken over Babylon. Babylon has its own religious structure, its own its own priests and temples and so on that are operating. I mean, this is not this doesn't seem like it's going to sit well with the Babylonian priests who are used to having people come with petitions through them to the gods and now he's monopolizing all of that uh, and it's going to adversely affect the Babylonian priests. Is he, is he unaware of all these consequences or is he somehow seeing some kind of political benefit in having some of these effects? Is it, does he, does he recognize that some of the, some of these things are going to happen, but he thinks this is part of the way that he can, you know, he might, he might be worried about the Babylonian priests as a, as a power center and 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 an alternative power center. And he's wanting to kind of uh, surpass their power, trying to, trying to reach past them so that he can, he can get them under control. I mean, it just seems odd that he would be just as naive as uh, as he's often thought to be, and doesn't recognize that the kind of effects that this decree is going to have. So, so wait a minute, Peter. Are you asking about verse? I thought you were talking about verse two, yes, just I, the way he's organizing the kingdom. But, but you're you're but you're talking. Are you talking about the decree that he ultimately is pressured into? making because yeah, of the Yeah, well, I think that Alistair jumped ahead to that, uh, so I was commenting on that, right? I, yeah, I was I was okay. initially asking about this the thing at the beginning which you which is what you were commenting on. But Alistair mentioned that his one one thing that counts yeah, against yeah. his wisdom is the way that he reacts to this pressure from his satraps. Maybe that's what's yeah, happening, but yeah. it just uh, the more I look, the more I thought about this past week, the more the more questions were raised about whether that's a plausible reading of what's happening there. Well, Darius doesn't have to be the wisest man on earth to make mistakes in organizing his kingdom. I mean, we kind of see this already in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, at the beginning of the book, made some mistakes in seeking to uh, uh, constrain Daniel and his friends, and turns out he was wrong. So, you know, maybe also this chapter is about Darius learning sure. some wisdom through Daniel's experience and through his experience with these uh uh, power-hungry satraps. Um, so I don't. I don't know that it would be awful for us to think that Darius made, made pretty make, pretty much makes mm. a big mistake here and um, learns from it. Right? Yeah, that wouldn't be awful. I. 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 It just again. I. I wonder about the. Uh, I just wonder about his. Uh, how? Why is he reacting the way he does to this proposal? One way we might get at the question is by thinking about how the chapter relates to chapter three. I think we've noted before that chapters two to seven have this kind of chaotic structure. Four and five certainly seem to be a pair, you know, the fools of two Babylonian kings and so do two and seven and then so do three and six. And um, in chapter three, at least, Nebuchadnezzar, I think, wants to unite his kingdom in, in some way, doesn't it? He's seen his dreams crash down in front of him, this sort of head of gold that's gradually become sort of divided and, and shot to pieces in the end. And chapter three is his attempt to unify it. And I can well imagine that um, chapter six could be reflecting a similar desire on Darius's behalf, this attempt to bring this 
kind of fairly diverse new kingdom under a unified structure and to unite them around one um, figure. And it feels like chapters three and six want to compare Darius's law with the image in chapter three in some way. Mm-hmm. Both are sort of said that they're, the kings cause them to stand and they're kind of raised up and they're raised up against God in some way. They cause problems to God's people. And they both seem to have this kind of uh, intended everlasting sense. You know, one proclaims the eternality of Babylon. You know, it's all gold. It, it will be Babylon forever. And the other is this kind of law that can never pass away. It's got this kind of, uh, it's intended to have this very endurance sense to it. And they're both undergirded by fear. I guess in one case the furnace and in the other case the lions. So uh, I wonder if that comparison can get mm-hmm. at some of the motives in some way. Right. Yeah, and I think that's that's a much more plausible explanation than suggesting that Darius is somehow a uh, monomaniacal ruler who just wants all the worship to himself because that doesn't fit with his the way he reacts when he realizes that Daniel is mm-hmm. you know that Daniel's being accused. He does he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't seem to be doing this for just for the uh, to puff himself up as as a ruler or as a god. It does seem to be politically motivated. You do have to wonder um, if Daniel's going to be elevated as one of these three presidents or three heads. How much Daniel knew about this? Whether he participated in the consultation with Darius and these hundred twenty satraps, you know, and maybe he presented it. A contrary argument was just rule overruled. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, almost seems like he's resigned, couldn't do anything else. Uh, so he goes to his house and prays. But it is curious, if Daniel is such an important figure, how come he doesn't have a say and his say doesn't uh, rule the day? Yeah, most of the commentaries I'd looked at suggested that the uh, the the commissioners as satraps who approach the king are uh, the ones who are opposed to Daniel as a subset of the commissioners and satraps and that their claim that everyone has agreed verse mm-hmm. seven, all the commissioners have agreed is a lie and they've actually excluded right. them. This is a, this is a, a, a cabal within the, within the bureaucracy. It's the deep state that's trying to, uh, mm-hmm. uh, trying to, <laughs> trying to take on this Jewish uh, upstart. In James's uh, essay that uh, uh, on this chapter, in uh, which is available online somewhere, it'll be in the in the program notes. I'm sure Brian will be able to put it in there. But he points out that verse four is a almost as a miraculous uh, miraculous a, a claim as uh, the fact that Daniel survives the night in the lion's den. You have these guys who are uh, maliciously motivated. Uh, they will they will spot any possible blemish on Daniel's record. And they surveil him and try to find something that they can uh, they can accuse him about, and they fail. <laughs> there is no ground, no ground of accusation, no evidence of corruption, no negligence found in him. Here's somebody who's uh, exercising power uh, righteously, which is uh, uh, quite the rare thing. Yeah, especially in the present day and age, I guess we're entering a world where it's very very easy to pry into people's uh, uh, personal affairs and so on and as a result of finding out how more and more of our leaders are hugely flawed individuals i guess so daniel turns out to be the paradigm for the jews in exile and mm-hmm. in the dispersion is to live such lives that uh before the pagans that they will see their good works and glorify God, you know, kind of back to Deuteronomy where the Israelites are sent among the nations to, so that everybody will know how wise and honorable their God is. And at the same time, um, you know, these, these colleagues of Daniel can't catch him uh, in his, in his moral failings. Um, So his only, his only vulnerability is in his commitment to Yahweh. and so in order to bring him down, uh, they go after his religious commitment. Um, and this, this reminds me of 1 Peter 4, where, again, 
Peter talking to Christians dispersed among the Roman Empire. You know, don't suffer for being an evildoer or being even a meddler. But if you suffer, suffer as a Christian. Um, and so this, 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 is, this is the way it works out in uh, exile, dispersion, and even among Christians is um, don't, don't live in such a way as to bring uh, disrepute upon the Lord, upon your God. Uh, but don't expect somehow that if you are living um, a good life and a respectable life, that somehow you're not going to get attacked. You will, because there will be those who are jealous of you and want to bring that you That theme down. of inspection um, of Daniel and his friends has been part of the story from the very first chapter. Um, they are being carefully scrutinized by those around them to see how they compare to others, how are they people of integrity, and um, they're being tested by God and also by the king. And the brittleness of the authority of the king is something that we've seen throughout the story in various ways. The king, through really serious sanctions and unchangeable, irrevocable laws, tries to establish something of the strength of his reign and in the end gets caught in those things. Those prove to be bonds upon him rather than actual means of his power. And the very strength of the sanctions and the um, irrevocability of the laws is compensating for the weakness and the, um, the fact that these nations are not standing up very well. They're crumbling. They're not having the unity that they need. They're under external and internal threat. And so with this confident exertion of the laws, the fact that they can never be changed, there's the hope that somehow people won't look too far beneath. They won't test these weak, um, crumbling structures. Mm. And when someone like Daniel actually does, um, they prove to be nowhere near as strong as they initially seem to be. I think often we can see the insistence with which people put forward positions against the gospel and often see in that the strength of the opposition rather than perceiving in that often the weakness of the opposing viewpoints. Yeah, great point. I think uh, Jeff's point too about the, the concerted opposition uh, conspiring against the Jews conspiring against the righteous is important to, to highlight. I mean, that there's a, a dismissal of conspiracy as a phenomenon. I think I'm not endorsing conspiracy theories in general, but there are conspiracies and people do plot together in order to take down their opponents. That happens uh, regularly and uh, it happens against Christians. I mean, you have an interesting hint here of a kind of Psalm 2 conspiracy, the, the verb that's used to describe what these guys are doing before the king. I, I, I think it's in verse six when it says that the commissioners, satraps came by agreement, I think is the, it, that is the translation in my New American Standard. But I think that's the verb ragosh, which uh, means uh, in commotion or it's it's the word that's used for the nations in, at the beginning of Psalm two, the nations are in an uproar. So these guys acting as one create this uproar before the king uh, against Daniel, who in, you know, in the Psalm two terms is uh, in the position of the Lord's anointed. And they're trying to take him down. They want to break his bonds and, and remove his rule over them. Uh, those kind of conspiracies and, and opposition are real. Uh, nations really do band together and people really do band together against Christ and against Christ's people. And um, we shouldn't live in fear of that. Daniel doesn't live in fear of that, but we should be realistic to be aware that uh, that that kind of opposition is 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 actually there the the apostles uh use psalm 2 and acts 4 to interpret what has happened to jesus and what is happening to them um you know jesus is was a victim of a conspiracy um and there were those who were threatened by him and who sought to manipulate the higher authorities to execute him. Um, and then, of course, they are going to eventually pay, or jumping ahead a little bit, but the, the uh, 
the the apostate Jews will eventually pay for their hostility and and their children, as Jesus says in Matthew twenty three. Um, and also, uh, I think it's Golden Gay who points this out at the very end of his his chapter on this is that um, just like Daniel, Jesus is also arrested in his place of prayer, um, and the authorities can find no fault with him. They try, but they have to uh, engineer uh, issues, engineer uh, crimes. Uh, and then, of course, he's he's delivered to death. His tomb is sealed, and yet he emerges alive in the morning. Um, uh, and um, so Jesus is yeah. a greater Daniel. I had a couple of questions, more questions about the decree that uh, Darius signs and makes permanent. Uh, one question is, what exactly does he think he's prohibiting? That is, would he be thinking, would he be thinking of people in the privacy of their own homes, offering prayers to their God, and that would be a violation of the law? Uh, or is he thinking something more like um, he's he's putting him himself in position as, as a universal priest, as a universal mediator, and um, petitions and seeking of God, which is the the that's the phrase that's used throughout the chapter, seeking that people would seek their gods at various temples in kind of public settings uh, through sacrifice or through some kind of offering. Do we have any way of knowing whether he actually has in mind something like Daniel's actions when he when he passes the law? And then the other question I have is what is what is this about the irrevocable nature of the of the law? Uh, it's irrevocable, but it has a thirty day terminus, which is a little bit odd. Um, it's irrevocable, you know, like the like the decree in Esther. It's irrevocable, but you can pass a law that basically nullifies it. <laughs> so in what sense is it irrevocable? And I, it occurred to me, I wonder if, is it possible that the, the 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 force of that is not that it can't be changed, but that there are no, uh, there can't be any exceptions made. It's uh, irrevocable in the sense that the, the king can't grant clemency to somebody who violates the law simply because he's, you know, extenuating circumstances or the king's favorite or something like that. Um uh, it would it would certainly have that effect, but is that actually what uh, irrevocable means in this context? So, uh, any thoughts on either of those? Then, what exactly is he prohibiting? What does he think he's prohibiting? And then, what is irrevocable involved here? On the second question, I wonder whether what's going on in Esther is more complicated. That the decree is not actually revoked; rather, there's another decree placed alongside it. And it puts people in the position of having to work out what, which of the two decrees represents the king's true will. Um, and so the decree cannot be revoked. But by putting another decree alongside it and by having a sort of victory parade prior to the enaction of the decree, everyone thinks, OK, this initial decree is not the king's current will. And so if we act in terms of it, will get in trouble. Rather, we need to recognize the king has now clearly put his, he's supporting Mordecai's cause. And so we should not support that decree. Yeah. But the decree itself remains. Right. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. But the, I mean, the effect of that is to nullify the force of the original decree. And then you kind of wonder what, what the point of saying that a decree is cannot pass away. Why, why say that? If you can, if you can massage the laws so that you can effectively nullify what had been passed. So why doesn't Darius do that in chapter six? Well, I kind of think he does. So, I mean, my own read of it is that he can't overturn that law. So after whatever happens to Daniel happens, it's still illegal for Daniel to go and pray. But once he's like publicly thrown to the lines, everyone who's accused Daniel, um, I mean, who's then going to accuse him the next day kind of thing? It's, 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 it's not going to sort of turn out well for them. And so I see what Darius does in Chapter 6 as very much parallel to the way in which Alistair has read and which I, I think Esther is should be read, um, that it, it's this, 
yeah, the, at the end of the day, you have these two laws um, side by side um, uh, because you've got this strange, irrevocable um, system. It, it almost seems to be set out in this chapter. They say things like, you know, it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance, you know, of this kind can be changed. So it, it it's portrayed as if it's just part of the way their their system works. One thing I find rather amusing is the way in which you have this irrevo- irrevocable system of laws. But what seems to happen is that's like the genome, and then you have this epigenome that has to arise in order to um, determine when, in fact, we'll actually execute or um, enforce these laws, because we don't actually want all of these laws to be irrevocable. So in <laughs> principle, they are irrev- irrevocable, but in actual practice, they're, <laughs> they're more, um, yes, suggestions than rules. <laughs> so so the, the, the claim that these are irrevocable is a piece of political propaganda, that everything, that these particular things from the king's mouth are eternal and unchangeable, whereas in practice, uh, that's that's not what's happening. They're actually they're being they're being adjusted and and nullified, and exceptions are being made. But uh, you still have this rhetoric of irrevocable irrevoc- being irrevocable. <laughs> is that is that uh, <laughs> is that a fair? So it's almost like it's a parody of uh, a claim to kind of godlike um, godlike authority. Yes, I think. Also, as we get to the end, it's clearly playing against the false claims of irrevocability that the enduring character of God's kingdom is asserted. Yeah, that's a good point. Peter, your description just reminds, should remind us, isn't this exactly what just about all political legislation is about? You have all this hoopla about how wonderful it is, how perfect it is, and then a year later it's changed or it's reapplied or it's uh, or it's not enforced. I mean, this is kind of just the way of the state, um, you know, to act and speak as if it's God walking on earth. But then you find out, well, it's maybe not really all that divine. Right. I mean, the whole thing, I feel like <laughs> it's got a really contemporary feel about it. It's like, I mean, again, if you compare it to chapter three, there. Nebuchadnezzar does what he wants, basically. He, he makes the law he wants. He's not pressured into it by anyone else. And then at the end of the chapter, he changes his mind and completely overturns the law and puts a new opposite one in, in its place. You know, But here, it, it's a lot more... It feels like these group of men, you know, they're not named or numbered. They're just this slightly shadowy force. And... and they kind of do things by coercion and, and sub, subterfuge and then kind of saddle the kingdom with this law that can't be changed. And it just feels a lot more like things are today in the Western world, at least. That there, there is this, I don't see most leaders as particularly strong. You know, they're, they're coerced by these um, uh, forces under the hood somewhere. And and you know, and the laws they make often have intentions and lives well beyond them. I, I just feel the chapter is bringing bringing to light a lot of these contemporary issues and the stickiness of laws. And more generally, it seems to me that the Book of Daniel should be read as not just about the empire of Babylon and the Medes and the Persians in particular, but making more general case against the babelic pretensions of empire and government and when we're reading stories like this we should recognize the sort of resonances that James has mentioned with modern governments and authorities and see something of the way that scripture is teaching us to compare and contrast these with the actual authority of God yeah yeah that's all helpful what about my first question about uh what Darius is actually prohibiting. I'd, and this is partly a, a question about uh, practices of ancient people. Would it be normal for ancient people to do what kind, what Daniel's doing in the privacy of their homes? I mean, you have certain evidence in some cultures of kind of gods of the gods, household gods, a cult of the household. So you would have some kind of prayers offered there. 
Daniel doesn't doesn't have anything like that. He's just offering prayer to God from his home. Is that is that something that would have been a common practice among ancient pagans? And is that is that what is that something that Darius actually has in mind when he passes this law, or does this is it surprise him that oh, there's somebody, there are people that do this. I didn't realize that there are people that do this, and un, uh, unwittingly, I've prohibited their their uh, private in home prayers. One question would be whether he sees that as something that could be reasonably suspended for thirty days. That those people who have household shrines won't mind that much just to put that to one side for 30 days, even though it probably wouldn't be, they might not expect it to be enforced because they wouldn't be able to surveil every single house. But the other question here um, is whether there are peculiar extenuating historical circumstances for instance, as James Jordan has suggested, with the gathering of all the idols from these various cities into Babylon, and that he's acting as this sort of universal mediator for a brief period of time until they can be sent back to their initial cities. Um, but yes, I'm not sure on this one. Yeah. Well, it's it's pretty clear that this is Daniel's practice. It, I remember when I first read this uh, years ago, I thought that Daniel... Uh, decided he was going to do this a little bit more publicly than he usually does, just to show his disagreement with the uh, with the injunction, with the decree. But in verse eleven, it says that all the men who conspired against him came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea. So they must have seen him mm-hmm. before doing this. Um, so it's not, uh, <clears throat> and, so, and so the whole they knew this. The, the whole point of the decree was to get Daniel. Uh, but it does seem odd that the king, uh, that Darius didn't consider the fact that uh, most people, I'm sure, had these household shrines um, and prayed to their own God. What, what was he, what did he, your question is a good one, Peter. What exactly did he think he was uh, forbidding? Um, yeah. I think Alistair's point is a good one too. That uh, I mean, uh, if you're a polytheist, then taking a taking a thirty days off from worshiping your particular household gods while you're offering prayers through the through the priest king Darius uh, that do, that doesn't strike the same uh, strike to the heart of your piety in the way that it would for a Jew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, my my guess is that personal piety wasn't much of a category for the average person for the average non-jew at this time and that really the sort of thing he would want to have prohibited is people going to temples and doing that kind of physical worship and my, my guess is that yeah daniel praying in the privacy of his room wasn't really the sort of thing he he was trying to stop in the, in the first place I do think it's worth thinking about the differences between polytheistic piety and monotheistic piety, particularly as polytheistic piety often seems to be very closely associated with bargaining with powers um, for privilege and protection and these sorts of things. Whereas monotheistic piety has a very different flavor to it. It's based upon loyalty, commitment and trust, dependence, hope, these sorts of things that don't seem to flourish in the context of a polytheistic environment anywhere near as much as they do within the context of the Christian faith, for instance. Yeah, good point. I mean, as Jeff said that uh, Daniel just go- keeps going around, going about his normal practice, uh, which is to pray uh, at an open window, kneeling three times a day. The window's open toward Jerusalem. Um, and uh, he's, so he doesn't take the option of just uh, uh, withdrawing from his open window, uh, praying in secret. He could do that. I mean, he could just uh, he could just back off, not be seen doing what he's doing. Uh, he decide he determines not to do that, uh, and instead continues to pray. I think I'm, I'm take verse ten, the prayer toward Jerusalem, to be rooted in the promises of the dedication, the temple dedication back in First Kings, Second Chronicles where uh, Solomon prays that the house would be mm-hmm. kind of a 
an exchange point for prayer. Uh, anyone who prays from a distant land toward this house, uh, then the God of heaven promises to hear and answer those prayers as they're directed toward the house. And what's curious about this, one of the things that's curious about this is that uh, if that's what Daniel's doing, he's praying toward the ruins of the temple, <laughs> um, not toward an intact temple. And yet uh, he's uh, seeking the God of heaven through the house where his name is, uh, his name dwells. In chapter nine, verse 21, Gabriel comes to um, Daniel after his prayer at the time of the evening sacrifice. And it seems that even in the practice of, um, even the practice of exile in the context of Babylon, he's still observing the hours of prayer and the hours of sacrifice and the connection between lifting up our hands as the evening sacrifice that we have within the Psalms is one that is seen in the practice of Daniel, even though there is not the actual practice of sacrifice continuing with the destruction of the temple. Nonetheless, he's still enacting a sacrifice of prayer. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not sure this will be a closer, but it's a um, it's a comment at least. I mean, I think one interesting thing to consider is the fact that what's going on here is a really all-encompassing prohibition on religious activity. So whereas chapter three was just to coerce various people to bow, not that many people actually, just three lonely Jews to bow before an image on a one-off basis, this, although it was kind of less overtly hostile and doesn't seem to have been malicious on Darius's intent, this is actually a lot more far-reaching and prohibitive of just personal piety. And so it's got a much more serious um, serious edge to it. And while, it, while at first blush, it doesn't sound like it's that big a deal, it's a very intrusive thing and, and feels to me, just looking through kind of the Bible at least, that it's a very notable prohibition on religious activity that I can't think of much beforehand in scripture that compares to it really so it's an occasion where this allegedly um irrevocable law this man-made law comes into direct conflict with a law that genuinely is irrevocable the the law of god and the requirements that god has um uh, for his people to obey and so it it strikes me as a a very notable moment in, in in history for that reason at least Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.